This is an Our Savior Evangelical Free Church podcast. To learn more, visit osefc.org. If you have a Bible, open it to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. And we will be starting in just a minute in verse 1. So last Sunday, we celebrated Easter. Many of you were probably here for that. And that's the day when Jesus rose from the dead, showing that his death on the cross was effective and that he had victory over sin and death. And so the work of Christ was finished on the cross. As he was being crucified, he cried out, it is finished to show that he had made full payment for the sins of mankind. But then on Easter Sunday, we get confirmation that that victory was effective when he showed that he had power over life and even death itself. When he came back three days after his death from the grave, bodily resurrected. So last week we got to celebrate those glorious truths as we remembered the resurrection. And we looked at the gospel of John and his account of that resurrection. And one of the things that Pastor Adam said last week was that we really get to celebrate the resurrection every week. Every time we come into this room, we're celebrating once again that Christ is a risen Savior whom we can trust in for salvation. But last week, there's no denying it, is always a special kind of Sunday. Every year when Easter rolls around, it feels just a little bit different as we focus in specifically on the resurrection. And we sing songs about Christ's victory over death. And we hear from the scriptures the firsthand accounts of him rising again on the third day. And we have a renewal of that celebration that we rejoice and follow a risen Savior. But then the question is, what comes next? It's easy to celebrate the resurrection and to roll around to Easter And to rejoice in that and to feel a new and fresh joy and a new and deepening of your faith as we look at a Savior who has risen from the dead. But inevitably, we end up back at this Sunday, the week after Easter. It feels a whole lot more normal. And Easter is as far away as it's ever been because it won't come around for another 51 weeks. And so what comes next for us? Because the resurrection of Jesus, it's clear to see how it affects our past and our future. Because in Christ's death, he took the payment for our sins, and he paid that on our behalf so that everything that we've ever done in our past, every sin we've ever committed is forgiven, and the payment has been made in full. And so it's very easy to see how Christ's death and resurrection speaks to our past, because it leaves us as forgiven, cleansed people where once before we were dead sinners, And as we look at the resurrection, it's easy to see how that speaks to our future. Because when we look at a glorious risen Savior, we know that that is our hope for the future, that one day we will be glorified like Christ is, given new bodies, and that we will be with God forever and ever. That's the future hope that is confirmed by Easter Sunday. 
So the death and resurrection of Jesus shows that everything in our past, all of our sin and wrongdoing has been addressed. And that's what's left in our future is when the perishable and the wasting away is replaced by the imperishable and the eternal. But we're squarely in between those two times. So what comes next as we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Easter holds immeasurably wonderful news for us, both in our past and in our future hope, but what does it hold for us now? How do we continue to celebrate here and now in the resurrection of Jesus? It's the question that we're going to be asking for just the next couple of weeks. This Sunday and next week, we'll just simply be asking As people who celebrate Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, what comes next for us now between his resurrection and his return? So if your Bible is open, let's dive into Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues of, as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Would you bow your head and pray with me? Father, I ask as we grapple with this question of What comes next as we look at how we celebrate the resurrection in our daily lives now? That we will be able to look back at these events almost 2,000 years ago, understand what it means for us, what it means for our lives, and what it means for our fellowship together. We ask you would speak to us through your word in this time, that you might enlighten our hearts and turn our minds to you. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So when Jesus appeared to his disciples after his resurrection, he was with them for a little while. And we know that dozens and hundreds of people got to witness him bodily, physically resurrected from the grave. But then after just a little while, he was taken up into heaven to return to the Father. But before doing that, he gave them a clear instruction to the disciples that were gathered together who had witnessed his coming back from the dead. Right before he ascended back to the Father, he he tells them this. This is in Acts chapter 1. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So chapter 2, what we just read, picks up with the disciples all together in one room. Christ has told them that they're to receive the Holy Spirit, that they're to stay in Jerusalem until that happens. And so where we pick it up in chapter 2, they're in that city. There's about 120 of them. They're all together in a room. And they're wondering what's going to happen. Because when Jesus was killed on the cross, they wondered... What did that mean for them? This teacher they'd been following for three years suddenly was gone, and it seemed like his life was over forever. And so then they had to ask the question, well, what do we do now? But then just three days later, that Savior came back from the dead, and they realized that his story wasn't ended, 
and that they could still follow him. But then just a few weeks later, he leaves them yet again. And we know that when they talked to Jesus after his resurrection, for many of the disciples, the expectation was that now that Jesus had defeated death, had come back from the dead, he was going to inaugurate God's kingdom on earth in Israel. That was their expectation. They even asked him, is now the time that you bring the kingdom of God to earth? That's what they expected before his crucifixion. That was thrown into doubt when he went to the cross. But then upon rising from the dead, the disciples believed that Jesus now was going to bring the kingdom of God. But instead, Jesus tells them, no, now is the time when I'm going to leave. When he's going to return to the Father. And he tells them, you'll receive the Holy Spirit. And you'll be my witnesses starting in Jerusalem and moving outward. And so we have 120 or so disciples sitting in Jerusalem in a room together. And the events of Holy Week that we just celebrated last week, those events are still fresh in their minds. That last supper that Jesus had with his disciples, his crucifixion, his resurrection, their their joy in discovering him alive. Luke, who's the author of Acts, gives us the context that where we start in chapter 2 takes place on the day of Pentecost. This was a festival day in Israel, also known as the Festival of Weeks, that would have taken place 50 days after the Passover. And so if we just remember our gospel account, the last supper that Jesus celebrated with his disciples before his crucifixion was the Passover meal, which means between the last supper and this day of Pentecost, it's only been about 50 days And so all these events of Christ's last work on earth are still fresh on the disciples' mind. Jesus has left them to return to the Father. Their expectation of God's kingdom coming to earth, being inaugurated in Israel, seems confounded. So they sit together in this room on this festival day. And as they're sitting there, the Holy Spirit arrives. Luke tells us that it looks something like tongues of fire descending down, resting on the heads of all who were there. And all of them at this moment are filled with the Holy Spirit. And as a result of that, they begin speaking in all sorts of languages as the Holy Spirit directed them. And what's happening is that they're talking in the languages of any who lived in Jerusalem. And they're telling of the works of God. So when Jesus leaves, he tells them, I'll pour out my Holy Spirit on you. Sitting in that room 50 days after the Last Supper, the Holy Spirit is poured out and arrives. And it starts to cause a scene in Jerusalem. Look at verse 5. Now there are dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, And at this sound, that's the sound of the disciples all speaking in different tongues, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language and they were amazed and astonished saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes, Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Figria, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome. Both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? 
But others, mocking, said they are filled with new wine. People from all over, all over the world, some Jews, others not, they speak all sorts of languages. But every one of them can hear a disciple of Jesus speaking in their native language to tell them of what God has done. And the disciples, after the Holy Spirit falls upon them, are testifying to the wonderful works of God. And in the power of the Spirit in this moment, language is not a barrier to that testifying. And so it causes a scene. Some are bewildered how they've come so far from all over the earth to Jerusalem only to hear someone speaking their native language to tell them about God. Others assume that what they're seeing is just a bunch of drunkards. And it causes a scene. And so Peter, who is among the disciples, stands up to address the crowd that has gathered around. And he says this, starting in verse 14, But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. It's about 9 a.m., This is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And then Peter quotes from the Old Testament prophet. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Peter then goes on to explain how Jesus is the Lord upon whom when you call, you can be saved. And he relates the events that happened of Jesus being crucified, of Jesus coming back from the dead and ascending to the Father to explain to the men and women in Jerusalem that what you're witnessing is the Lord pouring out his spirit on his people because we have a Savior. And any who calls upon that Savior will find their salvation. So what he quoted in the passage we just read comes from the Old Testament prophet Joel. We read from Joel earlier to begin our service. He was a prophet who likely ministered in Judah several hundred years before Peter's time. And Joel prophesied at a time when the land of Israel had been desolated by a locust plague. And the problem with locust plagues is that they could come in in immeasurable numbers And they would eat up all the crops that you had planted and that you were hoping to harvest for food later in the year. So you'd have no food to eat if the locusts and their plague was destructive enough. But even more than that, the locusts would come in and they would eat all of the crops that your livestock depended on for food. And so the livestock would also suffer and many would likely starve. And so for a culture that depended so heavily on its farming, To have locusts come in and destroy to the level that we see in Joel would have been a devastating event. Because it leaves you wondering how you'll find your next meal, 
how your livestock, who you use to work the land, will find their next meal, and then you're not even sure if you'll make it around to the next planting season to try your crops again. So that happened during the time of Joel, and Joel was a prophet of God who then spoke to the people of Israel to say that this plague we've just experienced is a little preview of what the day of the Lord will be like. The day of the Lord is a time known to the people of Israel as a day when God will finally judge all who live on earth. So any who are wicked and unrighteous will finally meet their maker and face judgment for what they've done. And the prophet Joel says that when that day arrives, it will be like the day when the locusts came in and destroyed our land because of the utter devastation that will reign as God punishes the wrongdoer and he punishes the unrighteous. But in the midst of that prophecy, Joel tells the people of Judah that God will decide to have mercy. That even though he rightfully could come on the day of the Lord and judge all, whether you're a people of Israel, whether you're any other nation, he could rightfully judge all as sinners deserving his punishment, deserving devastation. But in that day, on the day of the Lord, he will have mercy on his people and he will turn to them in kindness. Then he says the portion that Peter quoted, the Lord will pour out his spirit on his people. And that when he does that, the people of God will prophesy. They will see the wonderful works of God and they will rejoice. So Peter speaks to the people in Jerusalem to tell them that what we're seeing on this day of Pentecost, this scene with everyone speaking all these different languages, something that seems like just commotion and chaos, Peter stands up to say, you need to understand what we're seeing is the prophecies of Joel playing out in real time. God has promised he'd pour out his spirit on his people, and that's exactly what has happened in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. Now, there's still some portions of Joel's prophecy that have not yet come to pass. The day of the Lord has not arrived. We live in between the time where God has poured out his spirit and when he will return to judge all and to put away death and evilness forever. But Peter says that that prophecy has started its fulfillment here in Pentecost as the Lord pours out his spirit on his people. And so we ask the question, what comes next after Jesus' resurrection? And the answer is, the Holy Spirit shows up. And we should expect this because Jesus told his disciples this is exactly what would happen. Several times throughout the Last Supper, Jesus turns to his disciple and tells them, I'm leaving, but when I leave, my helper will come. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit. He tells them in John 14, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And so when we arrive at the day of Pentecost, we should expect the Holy Spirit to show up because Jesus promised that he would send the Holy Spirit to his disciples. And he says it's advantageous that the Holy Spirit has arrived because Jesus 
incarnated in flesh could be in one place at one time on earth, but the Holy Spirit now indwells believers and is with every believer always all over the world. And so this is where it begins, the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem. The helper has arrived. And when he arrives, the disciples begin testifying, speaking in any language that could listen, telling of the wonderful, mighty works of God. And the people of Jerusalem noticed. And what we see from that point forward, both in the book of Acts, but then also in the epistles that come after that, and then in the history of the church that we have seen in the 2,000 years since, is what happens when the Holy Spirit shows up. We see what comes after the resurrection of Jesus and after he gives the Holy Spirit to his people, and that's where we live now, between Jesus' resurrection and his return, but in a time when he pours out his Spirit on his followers, and the Holy Spirit shows up. And so what happened for the disciples in Jerusalem on Pentecost is what happens for us today. So I want us to look at just three things that happens when the Holy Spirit shows up. Three things that happened in Acts, three things that happened in the early church, but three things that continue to happen for us today when the Holy Spirit is poured out into our lives. The first thing that we see when the Holy Spirit shows up is that community is formed. Later in Acts chapter 2, the disciples will devote themselves to hearing God's word and to fellowshipping with one another. A family is formed because of this Holy Spirit. So you have people from all over the world, people that speak all different languages, some people that were born into the Jewish people, some people that joined in as proselytes, some people that were not a part of the people of Israel at all, but all of them are brought together as a family, having all things in common simply because the Spirit is poured out on them together. So when the Holy Spirit shows up, community is formed. In the epistles, Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 2. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we, have, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. When the Holy Spirit is given to God's people, he builds us together into a family. So we're redeemed, we're given the Holy Spirit, our relationship with God is restored in that moment that he redeems us from our sin. Where before there's no relationship, separation, and death, suddenly we have a heavenly father who has forgiven us and given us new life. And then out of that restored relationship, God also gives us a relationship with his other children. A family is created. God builds a people. And what we see is that this isn't just a spiritual reality, some sort of ambiguous language to say we're all a family, but it plays out in a physical reality of the church. That's why we're here. 
all in the same room together. A local church, a physical expression of the spiritual reality of God's family. So that's why we gather together and we see each other face to face. Because God has bought a people, a community of faith for himself through the blood of Christ. And he has given us each other that we might be reminded of that with our eyes and our ears every Sunday. And so we don't just have a, some sort of spiritual far-off promise of a family. We have the physical presence of Christian brothers and sisters in this room right now. That's the gift that God has given through the Spirit, a community of faith expressed through the church. We have to remember that the church is Jesus' idea. It's not an invention of man. The church isn't some way of organizing that Christians came up with after the fact. Jesus, when he was still on earth, said to Peter, as Peter confessed him as the Lord and Savior, Jesus said he was going to build his church on that rock. And later, Jesus would instruct his disciples on how we ought to act together in the church family. And so Jesus' expectation was that his followers would join together in local gatherings and assemblies as churches. And that's exactly what we see happen in Acts, and that's exactly what we see happen through the rest of the New Testament. The people of God, not just individual sinners saved, but sinners saved, made right with God, and made family with one another. So the Spirit gives us community because where once we were hostile with God, we now have peace and once we had divisions and all sorts of things that could divide us, ways that we could decide that we were different and apart from one another, now we know that we are unified in Christ. Whatever earthly differences we have with our brothers and sisters in this room, they do not rise higher than the unity that we have in Christ given to us through his spirit. So where God's spirit is poured out, community is formed. And oftentimes, this community can run into all sorts of problems. A phrase that's more and more spoken and heard is Christians, some very earnest, well-meaning Christians, saying that they love Jesus but not the church. And sometimes this, this can be coming from a place where they just simply don't want to be a part of a community of faith. Other times this comes from places of hurt where Christians have been in churches, been in communities of faith, and found them to be places of hurt. Places filled with others trying to tear them down. And so they read about God having a beautiful community of faith in the Bible, but then what they experience in church is far different from that. And it can be disorienting and leave us in a place feeling like, well, I, I believe in Christ as my Savior, I'm following him, I love him, but I could sort of take it or leave it with his church. The problem with that thinking, though, is first, Jesus loves his church. He gave himself up for her. He laid down his life that his church might be saved. When we get all the way to the end of the Bible in Revelation, we see that there will be a wedding feast, and it's between Jesus and his church. Like we said, Jesus started the church. He was the one to say that he was going to build his church on the rock of Peter's confession. 
And Jesus is the one who gave his spirit that we might be built up together as a family. Jesus himself is the cornerstone, but we're the other building blocks that the spirit uses to put together a community of faith. And so we need to acknowledge that for some, likely some in this room, our experience of church or being a part of a community of faith has not always been lollipops and sunshine. Sometimes being a part of a church has led to hurt, to anger, to confusion. Sometimes we feel like church is a place that's the farthest from seeing God's word played out. We should grieve that that's the case and that's the experience. But then next, we as a spiritual family, a local expression of God's universal church, should humbly pray that we are a church that builds one another up. That we will contribute to the health and vitality. Our Savior of is a congregation family. located in Wheeling, Illinois. That we will Our vision can be summed up in four words a building sister. community bringing Christ. Where we to learn more about this vision and, and our hope for our neighborhood, a brother or visit us online at osefc.org. Try to help them understand and process through We won't sort of ignore the issues that we have, but trust that God can help bring